Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better, Tim. I could not be better, especially knowing that our guest today is one of our good friends, one of our top peers in this biz. How are you today? I'm doing great. And of course, yes, better because we speak with the Lord John Lorden today. And uh, John Lorden, of course, from Brain Scratch fame and uh, his podcasts, Crime After Crime and Seriously Mysterious, Three Men in a Mystery, guys all over the place. Also on YouTube, you can follow his page at Lorden Arts. And he's also on Twitter under that same name. And he's in the new documentary on Netflix, Lance. It's a sort of a true crime documentary called Crime Scene Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. Right. And all of those people who are familiar with the Cecil Hotel, it goes back for years and years, generations of uh, strange occurrences there, suicides, etc. It has a rich history in folklore. And this documentary featured John because of his work with the very famous Elisa Lamb case. That's right. And Elisa Lamb's mysterious disappearance and death actually was uh, the first case that John ever covered on his on his channel on Brain Scratch on YouTube. And uh, and this is documented in the documentary on Netflix. So definitely check out the documentary. Um, it's it's really good. It uh, As we talk about in this interview, Lance, it kind of seems or appears like a true crime or paranormal documentary, but ultimately it, it's really about mental health and um, about the dangers of internet sleuthing. Yep, absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't have said it any better. And uh, that's exactly what we're talking about with John. And now he is taking that true crime and conspiracy conversation and turning it a bit, turning it a bit on the, the causes of this and, and the actual solutions. And of course, sometimes the solutions to these uh, conspiracy theories or these appearing to be supernatural moments, it doesn't sound as fun. It doesn't sound as, as, as eye-catching or... But a lot of it comes back to mental health. A lot of it comes back to people misusing medication or not taking medication or not even recognizing the fact that they have something going on with their with their, the, the condition of their mental health. So he's taking that and making that more of the conversation, and that's very commendable. And I also think it's about the mental health of the people who comment or do some sleuthing online. And in the case of this documentary, there's a guy who kind of got harassed. And I think it's a little bit about his mental health and about the people who harassed him, too. So it's really pretty, uh, pretty, really compelling documentary. I definitely highly recommend it. And I want you to listen to this interview, too, because I think it's important because a lot of people will watch that documentary and kind of think that John Lorden had didn't, did some of the harassment of this guy, Morbid, and, and he didn't. It's just not true. So uh, make sure to listen to John Lorden's words in this interview and on his channel as well. And I want to give a shout out to Ghost Town Podcast. Their website, Ghost Town Pod, you can buy a Cecil Hotel t-shirt or even a hoodie and uh, proceeds go to the Skid Row Housing Trust. And I actually wore one of these shirts in uh, our interview. You can see the video on YouTube. And anyone who's not familiar, Skid Row is what is known to the homeless population right there uh, in the in the vicinity of the Cecil Hotel, basically a tent city for homeless people. And yeah, this is a great cause that this uh, organization has taken up and you get a cool shirt out of the deal and the proceeds go to help these people get out of this uh, situation, this unfortunate situation. So anytime there's an opportunity to make something better, hey, wear, wear a cool shirt and know that your uh, contribution is going to a good spot. 
Okay, everybody, thanks a lot. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and make sure to check out the documentary on Netflix and check out John Lorden's YouTube page. John Lorden, welcome back to the podcast. How are you today? Good. How are you doing, boys? Nice to see you. Nice to talk to you. It is really um, an honor because you are, uh, just when you think you've hit that stratosphere of being influential and, and famous, you have, you have achieved another level. You have gone into this other realm that we can only dream for and, uh, you know, in our wildest dreams. So tell us about this tell, and, and tell us why you decided to even join us today and take time out of your paparazzi-filled day. <laughs> It's been interesting. Uh, it's a lot of people I haven't heard from for years and years and years reaching out, uh, you know, like literally kids I grew up with on the street back in Baldwin Park reaching out um, and from all different points in my life, like com my community theater days and uh, you know, school and all that kind of stuff. So it's 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 been really kind of interesting on that front. I decided to do this project because I always try to get my voice in when people are looking into the Cecil Hotel because going through that investigation the way that I did, which by the way, back then it wasn't true crime. It was what I considered a conspiracy review. I was finding information about this case online uh, and I saw this propensity that people had for pulling it towards a ghost story. So I wanted to help change that narrative, but I was figuring the way that you change that isn't by getting on and saying, hey, everyone out there that's that believes this is some kind of ghost story, you guys are all kooks. And, you know, I mean, that's that's the Internet, right? People ignore messages like that on a daily basis. So I really looked at, can I take this on as a conversation, be open to their perspective so that I could learn all about it? And in that way, I would know the points that were supporting or weak in terms of their argument and then I can do my own research show that's my audience and start like a real meaningful conversation in terms of what's going on with the realities of this case and when I was coming into it you know I was questioning it too it felt like a Hollywood stunt it felt like what they did on the Blair Witch Project back in the day so that was kind of my entry point and um, I still think you know it was it was clunky for what it was but at the time it was one of the most respectful commentaries you could find in particular on YouTube about that topic. And something with the documentary is I'm being portrayed as if I was investigating that through the actual time that it was happening. And that isn't true. My first video on Elisa Lamb didn't come out until two years after that. I know that's like a narrative choice, but it's just one of those things that I knew what they were going for. You know, I wanted to prepare it and, and phrase it in the way that was helpful to what they were going for. They wanted a sense of urgency in terms of in terms of the story unfolding and making it seem like it was in real time. But, you know, I did hours of interview and ultimately, you know, in the documentary, I they used a lot more of me than than I expected. But it's still nowhere close to what the full scope of that conversation is. And just like with any major project where you're a piece of the story you know, sometimes uh, the phrasing, the qualifying statements you make, the explanations or, or deductions that you come to, that stuff kind of gets left out. And, and that certainly 
happened a, a bit on this one. But what I'm thankful for is that the videos are all still there. So anyone that cares enough, you know, they can go back to the original content and see what the conversation was like at the time. But it's still a little tricky in hindsight because now they'll come to my channel and they're like, oh my God, this guy has, you know, hundred over 150,000 subscribers. And especially when you put that in the context of what happened to Morbid, you know, it looks like I had the clout to try to affect some type of attack on this guy. When the reality of it is back when I was reporting on Elisa, first of all, it was two years after what happened to him. I mean, I wasn't doing that type of content at the time he was going through that, but I only had like a thousand or 2000 subscribers at that time. So it was kind of an unfortunate side effect in terms of the narrative with how it all played out, because there's a lot of people that are misunderstanding the morbid thing. And they're thinking that myself or Stephanie Harlow were directly related to that. Yeah, this is a, a really unique um, documentary, and I think you're hitting on a lot of points. Um, I think it's four episodes. It's on Netflix, Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. Of course, it's about Elisa Lamb. Um, and it starts off, and I think most people, when they hear Elisa Lamb or hear about this story, you know, they, they think it's it's this true crime mystery or this maybe paranormal mystery. But ultimately, the documentary really ends up being about web sleuths and mental health. Yeah, I'm really thankful for the mental health. I, 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 honest, I honestly feel like they could have gone into that a little bit more. Just like, you know, pulled in some experts, did some more analysis on the medication she was taking, the risks of not taking those medications in the proper order. Like there's there's a lot more to the realities there that I understand for like a mass consuming audience, maybe they wouldn't have rolled with it. Like I, I get the choice that they made, but it's unfortunate that it's not like a DVD where you can have, you know, extra commentaries and extra things that people can go look at if they're interested. And because I think you could easily do an hour just pulling in the right experts and analyzing that part of it. You just mentioned uh, this individual morbid and that's uh, Pablo Morbid uh, Vergara. Yeah. Can you give a little backstory on that for anyone who's not familiar? Yeah. Um, he is uh I've been corrected. It's not death metal, but he's actually a black metal performer, uh, which is, you know, it's it's rough. It's dark. It's got a lot of dark imagery. Uh, I seem to recall watching one of his videos or maybe it was even a clip in the documentary where, you know, it's like a woman being chased through the woods and it's, you know, it's kind of horror driven in a way. So uh, what happened is someone who he attributes to being a web sleuth, which is another terrible thing uh, kind of falling out from the documentary because, you know, web sleuths is a term for a, a website, a specific website that actually has really good controls about how to handle talking about cases. Um, but he, I saw an earlier article where he was calling it internet detectives. Essentially, someone did a search on YouTube and they looked for videos about Cecil Hotel and they came across a video of him staying there. And once they saw the type of content that he produced, all of a sudden, in their mind, he was a suspect. So uh, the problems with that were the time he was there was a year before. He wasn't at the Cecil around the time that this happened to Elisa. And of course, we're jumping to an assumption based on his art that for some reason, this is the type of person that might harm Elisa and, and you know, somehow get her to the water tank. So um, honestly... Like I said, I didn't start reporting on it until two years after what he went through. I heard about him maybe a year after that, and it was brought to me by a viewer. And they were saying, you know, there's this other theory about this guy. I think I looked into it for like 30 minutes, and I was like, there's just nothing here. 
and and he's being so clear he had nothing to do with this so i i don't believe i ever referred to him on the channel i certainly didn't talk about him as any type of reasonable theory uh worth investigating but um you know it's the internet and uh trolls apparently went after him i think it was a bit of a dogpiling situation where all of a sudden there's you know two or three people that see what's going on and they jump in and then another five people see that and they jump in and uh it was from from what he says it was just a really terrible occurrence that took him to the brink of even wanting to end it all which uh, of course is is horrible raised a very good question uh for us as true crime content creators and a little bit of a side question in terms of true crime consumers and i've been kind of taking some of those questions and doing some stuff on my channel to try to address those things so the first thing I wanted to get out was the simple explanation, which I could I could prove, and I, I prove in my video with the dates. Uh, he posted when the Taiwanese newscast actually talked about him being a, a suspect, and the date on that video shows that that happened in February 2013. The date on my first Elisa Lam video is February 2015, so fairly easy to say, look, I wasn't part of this, but I am concerned about what happened because we talk about this content all the time, how can we make sure that we're mitigating those risks or putting new things into process to, to help us with that? So uh, the other thing I felt bad was about how the term web sleuths specifically was used. So on my channel, I had uh, Trisha Griffith reached out to her, sent her a bunch of questions, released a full interview with her on the channel. So people that do want to know what an actual web sleuth is, now they can come to the channel, get a very detailed breakdown of what that community does, the types of protections that that they put in place to avoid things like this. Uh, and I was also starting to learn, like just what else, I wanna hear all the good ideas from the true leaders in, in this piece of the industry that we're in. So I pulled together another panel discussion with Stephanie Harlow, because obviously, you know, she was featured in the documentary with me. Uh, Sarah Turney, who has a unique perspective because She's a content creator, but she's also a victim. She She's both sides of the coin. And on top of that, with the type of content she's created, she's released extremely personal details about her own family. And uh, finally, the doctors from LA Not So Confidential, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott, because they are experts, working experts in their field that are also creating content on the side. Uh, and on top of that, they're just brilliant minds. And I love pulling them into conversations where I need smart people to help us figure things out. So uh, I just released that on the channel uh, on Friday, February 26th. And the conversation that's happening around that is already super helpful. Uh, I'm learning more. Uh, we we, we kind of tried to identify the risk points and then looked at other leaders like um, Paul Holes, Billy... Uh, Billy Jensen, the Murder Squad, they have an actual code of conduct that they put out with their episodes. We talk about that. We talk about the different aspects of it and just try to figure out, like, how can we make sure that situations like what happened to Pablo don't happen again? Right. Rule number one is always get credit. Um, rule number two is throw everything at the wall um and see what sticks uh totally kidding by the way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no he's kidding rule number two is go for the money 
<laughs> go for the money and then throw everything at the wall. Now, I do want to add, John, that uh, the director, Joe Berlinger, you, you played a statement in this video, this Analyzing Risks and True Crime Content, uh, this panel. You played a statement from the director uh, of the documentary, Joe Berlinger, who, who said that you didn't have anything to do with this harassment uh, of Morbid, too. So I just want to add that. Um, and, and he said n- none of the people in the documentary did. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful they did that. Uh, I know some of my audience is kind of critical about like, well, hey, that's coming out in a podcast and this has already been exposed to the world in such a way like, you know, how helpful is that? I still think it's helpful because I've been able to kind of stage that quote in certain places so that people that might be coming to throw some more shade our way or something like that, they're going to have to get through that message first and realize that, you know, maybe that assumption's that assumption they made based off watching the documentary isn't 100%. I mean, if the director of it, of it's telling you, Hey, you guys have made an incorrect conclusion here. Uh, I, I don't know what else we could have asked for. So I do appreciate that Joe did that. And I'm really happy and proud of you that you're flipping the conversation, uh, to this because, um, you know, if you did something wrong in, in, in your investigation, that looks bad on all of us. Uh, because we all look to you as a leader in this, and uh, and we kind of say that jokingly, but it's also true that um, you know if if you had <laughs> uh, put, put the pedal to the metal in harassing morbid or something like that, there's just no hope for any of us. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that, and I, you know, I, I kind of it just took me back to when I originally started having tough questions and and tough conversations like this on YouTube. It just threw me right back into that mode. It was like, okay, I get that they've put out their big message. They have a giant megaphone. Um, but if people really want to continue this conversation, how do we pick it up from there and then move things forward and hopefully make them better for the future? I hope, especially now, because there's so many, like YouTube is literally exploding with people that are true crimers. Uh, I hope that that video is viewed by them as they're coming in so they could just realize, okay, hey, while I'm doing this, I should be cautious with this. I should watch out for that. I shouldn't go about things this way. Uh, you know, I was I was on the platform doing true crime before it was true crime. Like I said, I didn't even know that it was true crime. It wasn't until because of the respect I was giving those conversations and the open-mindedness, which a lot of people think is a bad thing for some reason. I, I still don't think it is. I think being open to different possibilities is a very good thing. Right before this interview started, Lance and I were kind of talking about how um, the case of Elisa Lamb and really some other um, things out there, other paranormal or questionable um, cases, you know, are less fun to look into now because they're more about mental health than about the mystery or the paranormal. Like the mist, like oh, the Dyatlov Pass is one we're talking about. It's like that's just a tragedy. There's no UFOs involved. You know, it's not. It lost a little bit of its fun, and maybe that's part of the problem with um, like the the incoming culture is uh, it, that is true. It, we have to acknowledge that that is true, but it's still. You know, talking about mental health is extremely important and cool, too, for the kids, right? It can be. Yeah, absolutely. There, I mean, so many people are dealing with it. That's one of the things I noticed when I started the conversation on the Elisa Lamb stuff was in the comment threads, I was seeing people that were sharing very intimate insights that they had because they were suffering from depression or they were suffering from bipolar disorder or they remembered a time when a medication change threw them into a different type of reality. So 
it, it was very quick that I saw the benefit of continuing that conversation, but we still had a big piece that we couldn't figure out. And that was that stupid hatch. It was the thing about the hatch, because if the hatch was closed, it just wasn't reasonable to think that she would have done that to herself. So that kept suggesting there was something else, some other person that was part of this equation. And it wasn't until we got to the lawsuit, until I started buying those records and going through those records, and I saw the deposition for Santiago Lopez, and that's where we found it. It was like the hatch was off. The guy that found her says the hatch was off. And that's what, it was a dramatic shift. Um, and you can see that in the documentary. They obviously play that up as a dramatic shift. They show the same clip of uh, LAPD, I think it was the public information officer, saying that he thinks the hatch was on over and over. Um, but, you know, that that discovery for my channel, we made it back in, I think it was 2016 or 2017. The wrongful death lawsuit was going on, which I went to also. I don't want to regress uh, into the topic of morbid again too deep, but um, it kind of goes into what you were speaking about with uh, the, the mental health conversation. And you said that it got so bad for him that he was considering ending it, uh, committing suicide uh, because of this. Um, have you experienced or have you ha had to respond to anybody saying, well, someone who, who performs in the arts of uh, black metal, um, like, look at his art. Look at look at what he's putting him out himself out there doing. He kind of brought it on himself. Has anyone ever said that? I don't personally feel that way, but yeah, I, yeah. Do I, you think he was internalizing that too? Like, why did I even have to do this? Look what it brought on to 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 me. I'm just super curious about that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I obviously I can't I can't speak for Pablo, but to the point you're trying to make, uh, yeah, I do have several people that are leaving comments saying, you know, look at the type of art he was creating and the mindset that that suggests. You know, did did he actually invite this kind of of darkness in? It's it's one of those things, though. I mean, art is an expression for a lot of us. It's a way of us coping and dealing with realities of our life in some way. I, I don't think that we should be looking at each other's art and kind of like, you know, maybe condemning it's It's hard because it's a filter too. it's not a clear representation. It's not the same as someone sitting on a, a, a chair in, a, in an office talking to their psychiatrist or something about what they're going through. But yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that comment. I've seen it floating around. Uh, I don't really know what happened in terms of the actual attack. I haven't heard really strong details about how many people it was coming after him, what platforms it was where this was happening. Um, so it's it's hard for me. And I was hoping to learn that. I actually had reached out to him, but we uh, we had a little bit of an email exchange and we just couldn't get connected before I did the round table because I was looking for the pieces that broke down in terms of what happened to him. You know, where where did things get really tough to deal with? What type of, are we talking about a threat on Reddit? Are we talking about Facebook? I mean, we know that those are kind of volatile places already. Did he see something at WebSleuths that, you know, was was possibly part of this? Um, there was a lot of good questions on that, but unfortunately we just, we couldn't connect to make it happen. Well, hopefully you do in the future. And uh, that would be an interesting video to see you uh, chat with him too about that. That'd be pretty incredible. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hoping at some point um, the right thing, you know, like a, a crime con panel or something. I just, I know, you know, I mean, this thing sat on number one for Netflix for a week. So I'm expecting that live events, once they start rolling again, that someone might 
put that together and uh, get us on the stage together to kind of talk about this stuff, uh, particularly if we're seeing that those risks aren't being mitigated or you know, I don't know if he's checking out the roundtable that I put out today, but if he watches that and he goes, oh, you're missing, you know, steps A, B, and C to this, uh, that would be really helpful in terms of us figuring that out and making sure that we at least put the word out. I mean, it's it's tough. It's not like I can force myself into everyone, every true crime creator creator's mailbox and say, hey, there's a message from John. We got to be sure that we're not doing this anymore, but we have to start somewhere and uh, just getting the message out on my platform, I'm, I'm hoping will ripple a little bit for other creators and, you know, make them think about it too. The, the most shocking part of your statement there was that it's been knocked off of its number one position on Netflix. This has to change immediately. Um, <laughs> what, what, what other program came along with the nerve to do that? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, it seems to be doing kind of what I consider a, a typical Netflix uh, life cycle. You know, that it's on number one for a week, then it starts kind of sliding down the charts. They've got their new big release coming out for March, and that's going to, going to jump in the top spot. So uh, it is, I mean just being a kid raised around the entertainment industry. I mean, it blows my mind that, you know, Ron Howard is one of the producers on that. I didn't even know that during the production phase. It wasn't until I saw it and I was like, Oh, what the heck is going on? Or when I saw the trailer, I was like, what Ron Howard's attached to this. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I, I think it is important though, that we remember what success is for us individually. I mean, is it cool to say I was in a number one Netflix rated thing? Yes. But when I actually was sitting there watching it, I was like, this feels like, um, just me doing what I do all the time. I mean, my content is already available worldwide. You know, every time I post a YouTube video, anyone can see it from anywhere. So it was, uh, it was kind of weird. It was, in, in some ways, the excitement that I thought I would have around all of it <clears throat> quickly got grounded. And then especially when, you know, we, we were dealing with a, quite a bit of grief. I, I know Stephanie, myself, John Sabani, uh, we, we dealt with quite a bit of uh, people coming after us, so to speak, uh, you know, making comments about we need to apologize to Morbid and all that stuff. And honestly, none of us even knew his story. I, I knew about him, but I didn't know about what had happened to him until we were sitting there watching it on Netflix too. And I think that's another assumption people have. They're like, well, you choose to be part of this project. You knew what they were going to do. That's not how it works at all. And, and I knew that going into it. I'm like, I am a component of this thing. Look at how many interviews there were. There was, there were so many different people. Um, and you're just trusting that you're going to do your best, represent your truth, and they're going to take whatever pieces they want and weave it into a narrative. And hopefully, you know, you appreciate where that narrative goes. And for this, I do, because it ended with the reality of this being a mental health break. And I've been trying, if you guys actually look at my Elisa Lamb playlist, you'll see there's several points where I'm kind of like, okay, and this is it. Like I came to the con same conclusion they did years ago. Like I, I even did the video where we took some of her writing and hired an actress and we shot around the area. I was really trying to kind of put it to rest even back at that time over and over and over. But the conversation would keep spinning. There'd be a new special on this channel or a new special on that channel. And there'd be some new little thing that would come out. You know, then the book came out. It was, it's been just, you know, kind of, I, I feel obligated in some way to Elisa's story to keep trying to get 
into those conversations to say, okay, but we know that this mental health thing is a major component to this. Is it weird? Yes. The synchronicities, bizarre. The Lamalisa test, mind-blowing. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. But the realities are that this is a young person that was suffering, and there's a lot of young people that are suffering. And if we can't learn from that aspect of it, then we're not learning anything at all. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Great point there about the, the Lamalisa test. I forgot uh, to make a note of that. Can you describe that real quick? Yeah. Um, there was a tuberculosis outbreak uh, around the Skid Row area at the time that this was going down. And the Lamalisa is a test. It's a, it's a test that's used for all kinds of different things, but one of them is for testing for tuberculosis. So a lot of the conspiracy people were thinking there was some connectivity to, oh, this Lamb Elisa test. And all of a sudden you've got someone there named Elisa Lamb. Is that some kind of code name? Is she a biological weapon or a project of some kind that brought TB to this area? Um, you know, there was, there was some pretty far out theories. And honestly, that wasn't even the most far out of the theories that I saw, uh, going through all this. That was another thing in the documentary. They, they, they show this clip of me, uh, looking at this list that's on my screen behind me. And I think a lot of people are assuming like that was my list of different possibilities. It wasn't the, the whole context of what that video series is, was me responding to conversations that were already going on out there. And that was a list that someone had put together of what they thought of several different possible, uh, conspiracy theories. And I think you can even pick up, at least for me, I hear the sarcasm in my voice when I say the Illuminati, but it seems like a lot of viewers, think that I was actually creating all of those weird conspiracy theories. Right. Well, that's definitely not uh, not your thing. Well, when I when I hear John Lord and I, I think conspiracy theory, <laughs> conspiracy theory aficionado. Uh, <laughs> no, just just kidding about that. Um, but it is frustrating and it must be endlessly frustrating for you when you've dedicated so much of your time on this to see for no reason other than sheer coincidence something like the Lamalisa uh test yeah and and be like really does that does it have to be that and and now you have to explain no it's just a coincidence i'm so sorry to tell you it's just a coincidence i mean how hard is that for you it's i mean for some people it's impossible i mean it's really where it gets down to belief structures versus critical thinking I mean, if you're really looking at these things and you're being critical and you research them for yourself and come to your own conclusion, you're going to come to this. I I'm fir firmly believe you're going to hit the same conclusion I have, which is, wow, that is super weird, kind of mind blowing, but it's a coincidence. There's just, there's no other explanation. That test has been called that for decades. That test was called that before she was born. So, you know, what are the other realities of that? Elisa kind of a popular name, particularly among Chinese immigrant culture. Lam, not a very uncommon last name. You know, there's there's other ways where you could look at it and kind of start putting that together. But then you get the other things like the, um, and this even this is kind of a, a of a stretch, the registrar, so, you know, the domain register, registry company for the last bookstore having an address and or the zip code. And when you put that zip code into Google Maps, all of a sudden it brings up, you know, Elisa's, the cemetery where Elisa's body is. Is that super bizarre? Yes, kind of. But look at the hoops that you already had to take just to get to that number. You know, the last bookstore, admittedly, yes, that's one of the last places she went. The name of the bookstore is already a, a bizarre synchronicity. 
but you went to the registrar and found the, you know, the zip code for the registrar company. And that's what you're searching on. Like the logic of the connectivity and that just breaks at that point for me. I do find that there's, there's a lot of these little weird coincidences when you dig real deep into cases. I know Lance, we found really bizarre ones in Maura Murray's case that I, we never like documented, but really weird, bizarre, little synchronicities like that, I'd say. Yes, especially when you're dealing with a human being with uh, double initials. Then you can find so many different synchronicities. Convert that stuff to numbers. And then, you know, you have the people that go off on the numbers, too. You know, everything with with the equations comes back to 9-11 in some way. Uh, yeah, there's there's just all kinds of different ways to twist that information. What it is, I think, in some way is people staring at something so intently, almost like one of those old stereogram photos. Remember where it would look like just a big jumbled mess, but if you stared at it for half an hour, a 3D dog would pop out of it. <laughs> um, it's almost like I that. I saw anything in those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you stare at something long enough, you're going to start seeing other things. Um, and, you know, maybe I ran into that a little bit with Elisa's case as well. Uh, it was a pretty fast move, even though I didn't know what the respectful true crime community was because it didn't exist on YouTube at that point. But when I had people reach out to me, like Sarah Turney, who had watched the Elisa Lamb stuff, and she's like, hey, my sister's missing, and you know, my, my father might be involved in it. Will you talk about this case? Will you cover it? Uh, when I heard from Brandon Lawson's family, uh, those things quickly shifted my focus. I, I still recognize that there was this thing where I liked looking into those kind of fringy, bizarre things, but the reality of dealing with people that were really needed help and dealing with terrible situations was a fast pull to the, uh, the, the kind of true crime stuff that I'm at now and where this whole YouTube explosion has happened over the past few years. I just kind of want to talk about how the police released the elevator video of Elisa. Um, obviously, she was missing at this point, so they didn't know where she was. I mean, there's no way they could have expected the reaction they got uh, from releasing that video. No, 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 no. Well, and to this point, look at the reaction that the documentary got. I, I really don't think that Joe was aware of the backlash that would happen against all the, quote, web sleuths in that documentary. The internet is an X factor that a lot of people don't understand. Um, what's interesting to me is, you know, the documentary had some people, if if we're not experts in terms of looking at crime after, you know, six years of, of doing this kind of work, at a minimum, especially when you have people that have half a million subscribers like Stephanie Harlow, you're, you're experts at the internet. So not at least bouncing that kind of back towards you know, hey, Pablo went through this. Have you guys ever gone through something like that? Stephanie got doxxed. Stephanie had to move. Like there was there was whole conversations that, it, I get it. If, if you want, want to con consider the amateur sleuth not an expert, that's fine. But Stephanie, expert on the internet, 100%. So yeah, it's, there's, there's still things where I think that there could be follow-up and other stuff, but you know, I've got people that are like yelling at me now about like, okay, John, you know, <laughs> you've given us enough of the, of the kind of follow-up on crime scene. We're ready for, you know, brain scratch and searchlight to kind of kick back in. So I'm trying to address the big things that I can, but there's still lingering questions that are bouncing around. And do you have anything um, specific coming up on brain scratch that, uh, 
I do. Um, not quite ready to drop it because I've I've kind of shifted gears recently in terms of um, I used to do a searchlight and a brain scratch in the same week, and I got to the point where I wasn't quite content with what I was putting out. Were they good reviews of all the available information? Yes. Did they reach much beyond that? To me personally, they didn't. So I've kind of stepped it down now to where I'm doing a searchlight or a brain scratch once a week, and they're alternating every other week. And what that's letting me do is spend a lot more time reaching out to families, talking to them, getting their insights, including that in the coverage a little bit, still separated. So my audience knows, okay, John's looking at the news coverage here. Now he's telling us, oh, this is information from the father. Um, I'm very proud of the Jason Landry case. Uh, the work that we've done on that because it started as kind of one of those you know news review episodes and uh, his father agreed to be interviewed and I partnered up with Ed Denzel from Unfound and we kind of worked on that together and uh, you know I think I put out it's I don't know like an hour and 20 minutes or an hour and 40 minute interview which typically on my channel those things don't perform very well but a lot of people really care about that case and uh, you know care about his father Kent, so uh, that one's doing well. But I'm I'm most proud just of the information that's in it. It's just got very good insight on a really mysterious case. It's one of those cases like Mora or like Brandon. Uh, you know, the vehicle is found and the person is missing. So um, that's kind of where I'm aiming for. That happened in Texas as well, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you you just mentioned that there's some information that you have in your show that you're proud of, um, and uh, you have the relationship with the family. Uh, what was it like kind of breaching that? And did the family provide you with this information that you're uh, happy with? I Yeah, I have a, my typical approach is to do the kind of news coverage version of the story first and put that out. And then I'll have a message in that version that says, you know, if you're a family member and you you want to get in touch with me, here's my address. And that has been a very good mechanism, but I'm trying to even kind of get ahead of that a little bit and make sure that the family knows, you know, even before that first episode comes out that I'm working on something, that they know who I am. Uh, with Searchlight, it's helpful because I, I can reach out to them and say, hey, look, I know you have no idea who I am on, the, on this YouTube guy, but I've put this page together of all these different missing persons tips. And I think this is going to help you guys out if you check this out. And I'll just shoot them that link, you know. So, uh, and then it's up to them if they want to bounce back and ask more. So, um, yeah, it's different for every situation. I don't have a particular method of operation. That's kind of the closest form that I've had to one in the past that's been successful. Uh, in most cases, I'll at least hear something from the family. Nine times out of 10, they're just thrilled that someone is covering the case. Uh, I usually hear that, you know, it was very comprehensive. Sometimes they'll say, well, you, you've got it 99% right, but there's this one thing. Um, so, and that's where it kind of opens the door then into, well, do you guys want to do an interview and give us the additional details and corrections and things like that? Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that's, uh, you just got to, you got to play it each one's different. And there's a lot of times where I make contact with family members and that stuff never turns into episodes. There's a lot of things where like, I'm, I'm talking to a woman right now and it's a missing persons case. Yes, but it hasn't been reported to the authorities. And it's essentially, you know, a, like a disconnected family case. 
and uh, can I help them? Yes. Is, is that ever going to turn into an episode? No. But am I going to shy away and not help these people? No. So it's um, that's another thing that I think there's a very simplistic view that people have about YouTube true crime in particular, where um, it's because there's so many creators that make it look so effortless. I don't think they really know all the work that goes in around it and more so the work after the episode drops, because that's when the contact will really ramp up. I've got family members sending me uh, thumb drives with, you know, documentation and stuff like after I've already done the episode, I've got family members that have been in touch with me for years and every twist in the case they're, they're keeping me updated. There's, there's a lot more that, that goes on to this than kick on the lights, kick on the camera and, and gab at the camera for an hour. But you certainly do make it seem effortless. I appreciate that. One thing I'm curious about um, after watching the documentary and, and we referenced this moment, but that moment in that video where that police, uh, the public safety chief or, or whoever he was um, mentioned that he believed the lid was on. Um, what if he never said that? <laughs> Just <laughs> quick thought experiment. What if he never said that? Where would we be with this case? Oh, goodness. It, it certainly would have shifted uh, the way the conversation went. But I think people would still be kicking it around because there was just so much that was so hard to believe about that. Uh, you know, knowing that the the staircase, the external staircase, if that's what she used, essentially ends the floor below that. And then she's climbing up a ladder, you know, on, on a 14, 15 story building in downtown LA uh, without her glasses, which supposedly she she needed her glasses. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different considerations that I think would have still created uh, a lot of, of similar dialogue. Um, the elevator video coming out in itself and what that was on the social media front, I don't know how you were going to bat that down. I know no one expected it. Um, there's still a lot of questions that I, I wish the documentary would have addressed about the video. They had the guy that actually found, you know, the found her in the video there. Why didn't we ask him about why is that last 90 seconds in there? Why are we watching a, how an elevator works for the last 90 seconds? Because outside of the context of, wow, doesn't it add a whole creepiness factor to that video? What does it do? Like, it just, it doesn't do anything. It's all the creepiness factor. It, it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's already, it's kind of twofold because if you broke that down, if you said it was a piece of fiction, if we took it completely out of reality, you said, hey, there's this brilliant young young filmmaker and this is what he came out with. You could look at that four minute video and say, it's, it's a, like a horror story all wrapped up in four minutes. And there's two main characters. You've got this girl. Well, actually, maybe three main characters. You've got this girl. You don't know what she's interacting with. So there's your second character. But then you have this mysterious elevator that isn't working properly. So that last 90 seconds, like, it's just, it's very strange to me that someone thought we've got a missing person now pulling this back, you know, into reality, we've got a missing person. This is the last known footage of her. Let's release this and let's keep that last 90 seconds. Honestly, I don't even know the value in releasing the footage at all outside of maybe trying to get local news coverage to pick it up. Cause I think it's easier when you're talking to the local news and you say, Hey, we've got footage. I, I think they're more likely to roll with that. But in a lot of cases, you know, we, we look into missing persons cases all the time. They might have footage, but they'll release stills. 
you know, they'll say, yeah, we've got footage. She was in an elevator. Here's a still shot of her standing in the corner. So you can see what she looked like and what clothes she was wearing. So this whole thing was handled just kind of differently right from the start. And I don't think we really still understand why, you know, I don't know if there was some type of rush or urgency that they had. The other thing is she had to use the elevator more than just that one time. So why are we using that particular instance to put out into the public? It just, it felt like there was a story behind it and a story that we still don't have an answer to. I wonder if it was just because they, because so the last 30 seconds is the elevator, uh, is Elisa's outside of the elevator. So there's nothing, it's just the, the elevator door is open and then it slowly closes at the very end. But in the documentary, they said that, I guess when you press the door stop button, it holds it for two minutes, mm -hmm. which is not typical that I've ever seen in, in an elevator. You got to hold it for it to stay. So I think that's, that was what was really weird about that when when i remember first seeing it and maybe that's why they left it in there because they didn't know that that was how it worked and maybe that was a clue to them at that point too i don't know maybe yeah maybe they were trying to show that the elevator went back to normal but it never came out with any explanation about that elevator hold button and it's not it's not the same functionality as like a hold the door open it's not like a door open button it was a it was meant to hold the elevator, I think, because there's no freight elevator in that building. So people that were moving in or moving out, particularly tenants, you know, if, if you're moving into the 13th or 14th floor there and you're moving a bunch of boxes in and they're coming up the elevator with you, if you can't pause it for two minutes, your boxes are going to disappear on you as soon as you take the first one into your room or something. So uh, that's the only sense that I can make for that functionality. I've never seen it in another building before in my life. And I worked in a bunch of buildings around, uh, Los Angeles when I was a kid, uh, never, never saw that fun functionality for a freight elevator. Yes. Totally normal. They usually have like a pull button that you get to the floor that you need to be on. You pull it and it'll hold the elevator there while you load or unload. But for, uh, just a passenger elevator like that, never seen it before. Well, I think you nailed it. I think it was, uh, the decision of the media outlets to put it out there knowing that a video like this was going to gain a lot more traction than simply a video of her entering the elevator and leaving the elevator and saying this is the person. That's going to be forgotten very quickly uh, as, uh, compared to what is out there, especially with the last 30 seconds uh, attached to it. So, I mean, in one way, it's sort of exploitative, but in another way, it's kind of it's kind of smart because everyone talked about it. Yeah, definitely. But it also went to kind of an interesting source for releasing something like that. Like, you know, Dennis Romero was a writer for L.A. Weekly at the time and L.A. Weekly, you know, it's not the L.A. Times and it's certainly not, you know, KTLA TV news or something like that. So it was kind of interesting just the whole path that that thing took. And then where it went from there, maybe more circulated down in in hand to hand in downtown L.A. Maybe the L.A. Weekly is it it is, but not for video like, you know, L.A. Weekly, especially at that time. It's it's a print publication. Uh, his if you look at the YouTube account that actually hosts the video, he does kind of post some little crime stuff here or there, you know, like a car being broken into or something nothing that had any type of views like he had there. It didn't look like he had an established audience at the time either for YouTube in particular. 
So I don't, I just, I don't know. I still have so many questions. I would have loved to talk to that detective that found the footage and just ask him, Hey, do you remember what the time code looked like when you found it? Was the time code fine when you found it? <laughs> or was it already mashed up and, and busted up like it wound up in the in the documentary? But uh, I didn't get to interview him, unfortunately. I'll, I'll put the offer out there. <laughs> I'd love to. Well, we know he's a listener, so uh, so make sure to email John John Lord, right? <laughs> or tweet him at Lord and Arts. There you go. <laughs> and you know, Ron Howard uh, just uh, contacted us right before this, and he expressed the same amount of surprise when he saw you in the documentary. <laughs> Thank you.